This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. So we've been talking about working with difficult emotions, working with deeper emotions. And in fact, last week, there was, I was saying something about how easy it is to conflate feeling good with being present and how those are two very different things. It's possible to feel bad, whatever that means, and be present, and it's possible to feel good and not be present. So is it, poss- is it possible to feel really hot and joyful? <laughs> we would prefer it to be not quite so hot. <laughs> in this upstairs apartment in the day where it was 105 degrees in some parts. But it is this temperature. Maybe your body isn't very happy. Maybe there are unpleasant sensations in your body because of the heat. Maybe you're tired. Maybe your mind isn't quite as sharp as usual. But there is really no particular arising that prevents us from being joyful. The joy that transcends happiness and sadness wellness and illness, hot and cold, life and death. Might it even be the case when there is something like an illness or being really, really hot in a way that is unpleasant, that reminds us that we can be joyful. And joyful is a funny word. It's maybe not effervescence, but that sense of aliveness, that something that's not on the spectrum of happy and sad. It's a different spectrum of feeling this sort of passionate aliveness that is not contingent upon the content of experience. There is a program in East Bay Public Schools where they're teaching mindfulness to kids. And they asked one boy, what is mindfulness? And he said, mindfulness is not punching somebody in the mouth. When I get mad at somebody, I notice the anger now, and instead of punching this other person, I decide it's probably better not to punch him because I'll get in trouble if I punch him. And I thought that was a really a great definition of uh, mindfulness. People have difficult emotions, and there are three things to do with them. Run away from them, get distracted, get busy, take a drink, type A behavior, different things. Let's have a bad relationship for the next three years, you know, whatever it might happen to be. Let's have my third marriage now as, as the way of not feeling this. 
or get lost in the feeling, get all depressed, feeling one is the victim, and get caught in the emotion. But the third thing is, can we be present for emotions? It's really possible to stay on the surface of the mind. The instruction of being mindful, you're watching your breath, you're watching your bodily sensations, here's a thought, here's a, like an agitated thought, here's an anxious thought, then you're breathing, then there's another anxious thought, and then you're breathing, and then there's in-breath, out-breath, anxiety, then you're hearing a sound, now you're feeling your knee, there's another anxious thought, and you just keep watching the symptom rather than the source. After two decades of being on the surface of his mind with meditation and watching everything changing, his meditation practice had become ineffective and unsustainable in exhuming deeply buried material. And with some bitterness, I had stopped meditating entirely. This time, however, when I returned, I decided to return to the practice and experiment with the basic teaching. I would begin with a scan of the body, but if a feeling or sensation continued to cause me suffering because it was deeply embodied, I stayed with it. I inquired into it and or be, I began to look deeper than the surface arising of the feeling or sensation. I learned how to train my awareness to the source of my struggle, to where I resisted fully embodying the, the emotion, feeling, or sensation. So he was talking about this underlying sense of dread that he had. And he'd noticed symptoms of feeling dread, but he never really sat with the dread itself, if you will. I learned how to train my awareness to the source of my struggle, to where I resisted fully embodying the emotion, feeling, or sensation. For example, it became important not only to bring awareness to the feeling of dread, but also to any struggle or resistance I had to feeling it fully. And that's very important, I think. I began to trust that emotions, thoughts, feelings come and go. They are always in motion unless we resist them. A very important lesson. Once I was able to fully embody the dread, the dread became less potent less intractable, and with that experience, I knew I had discovered a key to freedom from suffering. What he's talking about, and I've said this before several times over the last years in this group, but there's often it takes hearing somebody else's voice to kind of get something. What I've been saying before is that we, it's almost like we have a microscope of awareness or mindfulness. And we have it on a certain setting, we're in the moment-to-moment -moment thing. In doing that, we tend to miss the forest for the trees. There's a tree, there's a tree, there's a tree, but we're not noticing we're lost in the forest of agitation or anxiety or dread. But we're looking at each symptom one by one by one. You turn the focusing knob on the side of this microscope, and you look at the underlying mind-body state through which all of your experience is being filtered. Yeah, there's a thought, there's an anxious thought, there's another anxious thought, but what does it actually feel like to be anxious? My experience is that as soon as I start feeling anxious, I notice a few anxious thoughts, and then I'll get busy. <laughs> I will think, oh, it's time to check the email, oh, it's time to, <laughs> you know, whatever that might be. And I can sit with my anxious thoughts 
one by one in meditation, sort of on the surface, watching the thought, watching the thought, but really slowing down and being with what's going on in my body that I'm trying to avoid. There's a feeling for me that sometimes it's up in my shoulder, sometimes it's deep in my belly. And those are the two somatic things that uncenter, when we're uncentered, we, we contract our shoulders and our lower belly and we become anxious. The, the basic holding of the I thought, the I concept. Is it, is it possible to be with the sense of underlying anxiety? It's not, it's not like I'm anxious because uh, something's happening in my life today or might happen tomorrow. It's something that I learned a very long time ago that life is not a safe endeavor. And that if I'm not really hypervigilant, and even if I am, bad things could happen. You might not have as much of a fear-based personality type as I do. You might have a more shame-based or a more anger-based. But whatever type it is, I'm, I'm talking about myself and my pattern. I think a lot of people have this underlying anxiety. Maybe there's an underlying shame. I know people, often women, who are apologizing all the time. There's this sense of I'm not enough rather than I'm, I'm afraid. Or what we were playing with during the meditation was the possibility of being with that underlying feeling and being able to bear it for a little while and then seeing what, what came out of that. So we talked about the third moment of the first moment is you sense something, I, I say something. The second moment is there's an arising feeling. The first and second moment happens so quickly that we often think they're one moment. Like if I say Trump, <laughs> what did I tell you? I say Trump, and very so quickly a feeling arises that's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And we think it's the same thing. But you can begin to train yourself that there is a second moment, there's the hearing of a, a word, and then because of the conceptualization process, because of past associations, a feeling arises. And then the third moment is we react, and we make a noise. <laughs> like, I don't like him, or I love him, depending on what side of the aisle you happen to be sitting on. And all this happens so quickly that it's often really unconscious. But once again, you can do this first, second, and third moment in this way of staying on the surface. What I would like to do is take this even to the level of addiction and working with PTSD. People are addicted to suffering. People are addicted to being identified as, I'm somebody who suffers in a certain kind of way. And even though this is incredibly unpleasant, it is less threatening than being somebody you've never met yet who's not addicted to that suffering. That being the person who jumps off the cliff into the not knowing of who would I be if I'm not addicted to suffering. Ramdas says this wonderful line, which I've repeated innumerable times, that the spiritual path, and particularly the part we're talking about right now, is like being jumping out of or being pushed out of an airplane and partway down realizing you don't have on a parachute. And then a little further way down realizing it's okay because there's no ground. But in that period between, wait a minute, I don't have on a parachute, and there might be big rocks coming up here soon, and realizing there's no ground, it's very scary to be in this free flow where it's not like, 
I'm me, I'm suffering, I've got this identity. We're trusting groundlessness that there isn't really a solid I. There's just experience and consciousness meeting experience. There's two possibilities. You're getting identified with your suffering, becoming a victim, or you can be addicted to pushing it away, staying busy, drinking, eating, viewing, etc. So the Canadian psychiatrist Ronnie Lang, R.D. Lang, some of you may have heard of him, he actually came to Maharaji. It's a whole very humorous story. Ramdas brought him to Maharaji. He was Ramdas's friend, and, and Ramdas said, you're going to love Maharaji. He's really fantastic. And Maharaji said to Ronnie Lang, oh, you're from America. He said, no, Maharaji, I'm from Canada. And then he said, oh, you have two children. He said, no, Maharaji, you've got three daughters or something. I'm just making up. And then he said, oh, you're this. He said, no, I'm that. And then Ronnie Lang turned to Ramdas and said, your guru is a, I'm sure he's a lovely person, but I think I'm going to leave now, right? So that was clearly somebody who was not supposed to be there. <laughs> he just got him out the door. But anyway, quote from Ronnie Lang. People are afraid of three things. Death, other people, and their minds. <laughs> I think that's just the greatest quote. And if you think about it, that's what we're afraid of. Death, other people, and their minds. So, is it possible then to find a willingness to investigate the source of addiction rather than focusing on the addictive behavior? Usually when somebody's addicted, we're talking about the eating or the drinking or the relationship thing rather than what underneath that is causing me to behave that way. And certainly 12 steps are doing that as you get more deeply into the, in, into the 12 steps. But when we begin to investigate the source of addiction, it leads to deep anxiety as we begin to recognize the need to try to escape, to escape the desire for exactly what it is and the need to escape the lessons that will inevitably arise when we do investigate. Can we focus on the source rather than the behavior itself? In doing this, the anxiety or the other qualities won't necessarily completely go away, but we can transform them relate to them, let go of being driven by them. And there's a wonderful guy named Gabor Mate. You know Gabor Mate? He's a, uh, I guess he's a psychiatrist in Vancouver who works with street people and addicts. And he says some very interesting things about addiction. He says that the two dominant emotions of addiction are resentment and fear slash anxiety. Fear of the way things are and resentment that they are this way. We have fear of life and of unpleasant mind states, and we resent them. So that we try to get away from that by doing addictive behavior. Addiction temporarily suppresses fear and resentment, but the cycle will continue, and often with increasing force, until we can investigate and sit with the source itself. Wonderfully enough, life will continue to present new sources to feed the resentment and the anxiety until we get to the source. As long as we haven't gotten to the source, life itself again and again and again will be presenting material to be afraid of and to resent. Quote from Eckhart Tolle, be at least as interested in your reactions as in the person or situation that triggers them. What it feels like for you as in the person or situation that triggers them. Okay? 
And that's a hard thing to do. It's much easier to blame the weather, the heat, the poor driving of the guy that just cut you off, the political uh, situation, the on and on and on. So it's much easier to blame what's going on out there. I mean, this is really the same thing as the Tibetan slogan from the Lojong teachings, drive all blames into oneself. That as long as we're blaming the external environment, and the external environment includes how your body feels, because that's external to consciousness in a certain way. As long as we're blaming, healing isn't going to be happening. We have to withdraw the blame and be with, not with the trigger, but what it is we're actually feeling. What we're really talking about is learning to, through attention, be centered with difficult feelings. With the deep feeling that is the source of addictive behavior. And this is not something we're going to be able to do all at once. It's not going to be something that happens just by saying, oh yes, I'm going to look at that. And as, and as I even pointed out myself, that by myself going in a deeper layer, I've had a couple of kind of unpleasant days. I walked around feeling kind of like a three-year-old or a two-year-old in a, in a world of adults, and I felt very vulnerable, very fragile, at danger in a bit, as I was in public. Generally, I'm like, rrr, rrr, get out of the way. <laughs> so, and it was, it, I just uncovered another layer of that. And I, the automatic mind always interprets the present in light of past conditioning, especially when emotionally aroused. This reactive mind has a difficult time distinguishing a very vulnerable time in the past from what's happening in the present. So that's what addictive behavior is about. It's, we were addicted a long time ago to not feeling so scared or so ashamed or so angry. And then something, some, some trigger arises in the present and all of a sudden we're two years old, all of a sudden we're one year old, all of a sudden we're three years old. We're not then relating to the present. We're a child being caught in an emotional cycle. This reacting to the past is called implicit memory and we are unaware that we are remembering, and since we are unaware, there is very little we can do to heal the fear-based pattern. Running from or being lost in our emotions prevents the movement toward freedom. Discussion, and I feel free to talk. What's being pointed out here in that question of using psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy as a way of understanding the source or going beyond addictive or uh, PTSD uh, propelled behavior brings up the fact that there are really two very distinct ways of working with this. One of the ways is what we've been talking about, of coming up from the bottom, of learning to be present enough, embodied enough, grounded and centered enough that we can be with the underlying feeling. And we've even talked before about how Amid talks about the primary and the secondary process. The primary process is what arises naturally in life, thought, sensation, sensory experience, emotion. And the secondary process is when we're reacting to the primary process. And as long as we're being reactive, which is often an addictive behavior, we're not really present and we're not really in the, the process of awakening other than 
the sense that everything is the process and you have to do it until you're done doing it. What's interesting is the fact that when you stick with any primary process, like you're feeling upset today, if you, feel, if you stick with the upsetness enough, and it might not just be today, it might be over a period of time, that that will become a secondary process to something deeper. And then you pay attention to that primary process, and that eventually becomes secondary until you're peeling away what it is that's causing the addictive behavior or the PTSD feelings. There's another way of doing this, though, is it's starting at the end, having a psychedelic-assisted experience, or we've talked before about yoga nidra, where you have a guided experience of being free, temporarily. But because you haven't created the foundation, you can't stay there. But people like Richard Miller, for instance, who uh, has been doing this with the armed forces, and he has a wonderful interview on Buddha at the gas pump, has been doing eye rest with people uh, who are coming back from the war with PTSD and with people with severe chronic depression, that he guides them into a temporary state of non-duality. And they see that their problem is truly contextualized in a vastness, and they no longer feel helpless and hopeless. And then they have the strength and the courage to go back and do the work. But until they had this temporary experience of how, how big the mind actually is, big mind, that they felt lost and unable and helpless. So we could even do that very briefly right now. So that I would like your, your basic practice right now to listen to the sound of my voice. You're not listening to the fan, you're not listening to the rattling of the window or any other sounds, but the main thing you're doing is you're listening to the sound of my voice. What is it that continues when I stop? Or if you watch your breath, watch the breathing in, watch the breathing out. But what is it that continues in the gap between the in-breath and the out-breath, between the out-breath and the in-breath? Is there some kind of awakeness or aliveness that is always there? That is so present and so familiar and it's so intimate that we don't even notice it. That we're always fixated on the content of awareness rather than the quality or the truth of awareness itself. One way of talking about this practice is awareness of awareness. What would it be like if you're not so concerned about what you're aware of, but just being with that awakeness? Is there anything special you'd have to do to make that awakeness be there? No, it's always there. Even when we're worrying about the future or remembering the past, we're awake in the present. Even if we're like really super unhappy, we're aware of that. We can't do anything but be aware of the present moment, because that's what life is. Even when you're distracted, you're aware of the distraction. In certain schools of Tantra, for instance, which we've talked about also in the past, they're saying that consciousness is creating reality moment to moment. Just hang out with the consciousness. Don't be so concerned about all the pictures and sounds and that. They're there. Enjoy them. But don't be so bothered by them. There's not a solid eye that's experiencing it. It's not like the stuff is coming in. It's being created from consciousness, if you will. 
So that may be a little bit intellectual, but what we're saying is, as well as what we've been talking about of coming from the bottom and learning to be with the source feeling, we can go to the very end stage of even the source feeling, even this deepest wound that we have, is still just this small cloud in the vast sky of the conscious mind. And that, that probably, I would guess that most of the people in this room, if not everybody, through meditation or through psychedelic drugs or through love or through being in nature or being in a relationship with God or whatever it is, at times has been in that expanded state. And in fact, in Theravada Buddhism, the very first stage of enlightenment is you have this experience of vast mind. And you come back and you're still afraid and you're still angry and you're still sad, but it's never quite the same. Because it's now being experienced in the context that you also have had the experience that you're everything. So it's not such a big deal anymore. You're still angry, but there's kind of a part of you saying, Dale, you're doing that again? And I mean, oh, come on, do you really, it, you know, that's kind of silly to get so stuck in that. And then there's another part of you, no, no, this is, that guy is bad, and you're really caught in the anger. But there's part of you that knows. It's just kind of like this dreamlike thing that's unfolding. What I'm suggesting here, and we'll, we'll do a guided practice in, in a minute or two here. What I'm suggesting is that it would be really useful at times to notice if there is a repeating pattern in your life, a, a difficult emotion that keeps arising, and is it possible then to remember that? Because often we're not able to do this when it's actually happening, at least in the beginning. Hopefully after time, one will be able to do this practice on the front lines of life. But in the beginning, we come home and we say, boy, I got really mad at that person, or boy, I felt really anxious in that situation there. And then you remember that, and you feel the anxiety or the anger, whatever it is. You feel it. You feel it in your body. You see if you can bear that. You can see if there's anything underneath that. What are the sensations? What are the images that arise? What are the thoughts? What are the emotions? And you keep coming back to the basic feeling. In the beginning, if you can bear that for a few minutes, that'd be fantastic. Maybe even a minute. And you just learn to a little more, a little more, begin to bear the thing that you have perfectly constructed a personality structure around of trying to avoid for all the decades of your life, minus those few months in the, in the beginning when you were still innocent. Let's do a guided practice then. Let me give a, a slight apology that I'm going to do this practice as part of our regular meditation. So there'll be some invoking in the present and getting embodied in that. But this, this main part of the practice of being with the emotion is something that you can do. You can just go directly, just like in Tonglen. Sometimes you do the whole five steps, da-da-da-da-da. And sometimes you just go to the basic taking and sending for 30 seconds, and that's it. As we begin our practice together, by way of cultivating motivation. Imagine what your life would be like without this core wound that drives so much unconscious addictive behavior. What, what would it be like to live without addiction? Mm -hmm. 
what would it be like to live without trauma-based behavior? Freedom from automatic mind, from implicit memory. Is that something that is really worth exploring and cultivating with strong motivation, strong yearning? Rather than rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, is it possible we can find the courage to go to the core of our suffering. And can you then please invoke that which is beyond conditioning, that which is beyond suffering, that which is beyond duality, your own true nature, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the Christ, the Mother, the Buddha, the higher power, Invoking that which is absolutely trustworthy. Reaching out, receiving. The blessing that is always available. And the trust that is the outcome of this invocation increasingly allows us to be with whatever it is that is arising, thought, sensation, sensory experience, emotion, without any thought of self-improvement or fixing, of moving the imperfect to the perfect. Just this. Letting this sense of trust also become embodied by first taking a few grounding breaths out through the base of your torso inhabiting the base And similarly, taking a few centering breaths as you breathe out, dropping down into the hara, down below the navel, the lower belly. Strong out-breath. Lower belly not collapsing as you breathe out. Sea of chi, sea of energy. The strength 
the energy, the, the chi that breathes the breath and beats the heart. And then remember a time in the recent or not so recent past when you felt some difficult, deep emotion, a sense of fear, shame, anger, something you were really caught in and something that you have some sense was not... a one-time occurrence, something that's happened again and again in various situations, various kinds of relationships. Can you remember this with some specificity? Can you see the image? Can you feel what it was like to be in that situation? And can you then begin to pay particular attention to the thoughts, the images, and the sensations that arise? What thoughts are coming up? What sensations are arising in your body? We're not trying to change anything. We're not trying to fix anything. Can you just be with the thoughts, the images, and the sensations? when you remember this difficult moment. Just being willing to be with us for a short time And now, even being with the emotions that arise, can you feel the emotion or emotions that were arising at that time and might be also arising right now? Sensations in the body, emotions, thoughts, images. Making friends with even this part of yourself becoming intimate with something that you have more than likely spent so much energy avoiding. Might be unpleasant, but can you be awake during the unpleasantness? Notice any impulse to avoid, to run away, Notice any impulse of being overwhelmed and getting lost in the emotion and the sensation. Coming back to this very balanced, clear, centered relationship with sensation and sensation in the form of emotion as it's arising in the present. If you're resisting doing this, Can you be with the resistance? 
without judging it. If your mind keeps getting distracted, can you just notice the distraction without being critical of distracted mind or tired mind or the tricks that the body mind might try to throw up to not feel the depth of these feelings right now? And then to make this a bit softer, can we go into our heart? Not as a way of avoiding what we've been experiencing, but can we find vast, boundless, warm, connected heart? Relationship with the sacred, the relationship that heals. Not just being aware of how difficult this is and has been, the emotion, the sensation, the thoughts and images that arise. But having this deeply intimate, heartfelt relationship with resistance to what's going on, to the depth of it itself, whatever's going on. Notice how the heart can open. Sometimes it is caught in the old pattern of avoidance. Realizing how everybody, every per, almost every person on this planet, is involved in the same struggle. This deep, deep sense of separation from self, from God, from oneness, the pain of that, the yearning to go beyond that, the overwhelming nature of the struggle so often. Compassion not only for your own struggle, but for that of all other beings too. Coming back to being centered, embodied, clear awareness, letting go of trying to be with the depth of this suffering from this remembered event or situation, being here in the room, compassion for self, compassion for all other beings, a wish that all other beings might find the freedom, the joy, the peace that comes from uprooting the cause of suffering. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings find lasting joy. Be really kind to yourself. It's in a way the most difficult work, the most productive work to find a way to be with the part of yourself that you've abandoned. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.